0: This is the, waves. This, this is is the, the waves. waves. this is the waves. This is the waves. This is the waves. This is the waves. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, the release of Bill Cosby from prison. I'm Marcia Chatlin, author of the book Franchise The Golden Arches in Black America, and professor of history at Georgetown University. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me thinking about Bill Cosby, me too, and what comes next for survivors of sexual assault. And me,
1: Lily Loofborough, a staff writer for Slate, where I cover politics, culture, sometimes comedy, and sometimes despair.
0: Many of us were shocked to learn that Bill Cosby was released from prison on June 30th, after being convicted of sexual assault in 2018. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned his three to ten year sentence because of an agreement between a former state prosecutor and Cosby. This topic has so many layers, the case itself, the way it serves as an outlier in sexual assault prosecutions, the tremendous star power of Bill Cosby, and the larger framing of this case as emblematic of a Me Too victory. I've been fascinated by this topic because of the ways that Cosby's demise wasn't just about Cosby and the survivors. Cosby's status as an entertainer and philanthropist also called into question the culture of enabling that surrounds predatory behavior and allows it to go on for so long. As a college professor, I see similar dynamics often in academia, where noted scholars or big-time benefactors are protected at the expense of survivors. Lily, you've reported great stories about Cosby. Why did you want to talk about this? This is a topic I can't stop thinking about because
1: I've been tracking this case and what it did or didn't mean for Me MeToo since 2017, almost before there was a MeToo. Cosby walked free back in June of that year of 2017 because the jury was unable to reach a verdict. And it seemed to me, at the time, symptomatic of a long-standing tendency to disbelieve survivors or to hold them up to a much higher standard of honesty than offenders. In that case, it seemed to me that because Cosby uh, <laughs> was openly a cheater and therefore a liar and had admitted to a variety of dishonest conduct, including campaigns to, to make Andrea Kahn stand out to be a liar. So I was surprised pleasantly so, and that changed. Like, it seemed to me like when Cosby was convicted that Me Too, which, you know, had been in its very earliest stages, had actually achieved something concrete. And so now the joke's on me, I guess, because we're
0: back to square one. When we come back, Lily and I will explore the hows and whys of this twist in the Cosby case, and then we'll take a few steps back and think about what this means for future cases and the movement known as Me Too. (laughs) Me Too. So Lily, I need your sharp legal eagle sensibilities to help me understand what exactly happened in the Cosby case. How did this conviction get overturned?
1: So there were two um, points of contention, I would say, within the legal community about the Cosby case that may or may not have contributed to his eventual conviction. So one was the decision... um, to allow some other victims to testify. This was decried by many legal experts as being prejudicial. And the second was the decision to unseal a deposition which had been meant to be part of a non-prosecution agreement that should never have technically seen the light of day, given that it was part of a civil suit that was settled back in, I think, 2007. So the fact that that was brought into play uh, was something that Cosby's legal team was challenging from the very beginning. And finally, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that that was indeed inappropriate. And that if a prosecutor had promised not to prosecute, then that
0: promise needed to be honored. So this is the thing that is confusing to me. So if one prosecutor makes an agreement, and then vacates that position, the next prosecutor has to uphold that agreement, even if evidence changes, circumstances change, change. Is that just always binding?
1: Yes, it probably should be, right? That's the argument. Um, A non-prosecution agreement is basically what it sounds like. It's usually a contractual arrangement between a government entity and an individual, right? Stipulating that the individual will not be prosecuted for an offense if they cooperate in some specified way. And I want to say a couple of things about that. So number one is that the majority of these are offered to rich suspects or those involved in white-collar crimes, which is already, I think, a sign of how questionable their function is and their place in our justice system. Um, they're rarely used in cases of sexual assault, and in fact, the only comparable one a federal judge could name was the one negotiated for Jeffrey Epstein and his co-conspirators or his potential unnamed co-conspirators. The second thing is that it's not particularly clear whether that's even whether a non-prosecution agreement is even technically what Cosby got.
0: So this is the thing that was confusing to me because it's saying that he's cooperating in some. Other way, but I don't think that was really clear, like what it was. Yeah, it's a really messy story. So so Bruce
1: Castor was a district attorney in Montgomery County when Andrea Constant came forward. He would later claim that he didn't think she was credible enough to secure a conviction against Cosby. So he came up with kind of a workaround. He said that he promised not to prosecute Cosby so as to quote unquote create an atmosphere that would pressure Cosby to testify in a deposition in a civil and not criminal suit. So there's some weird stuff here, though. So for one thing, there is a way to guarantee someone immunity from prosecution, and that's not even close to what Castor did. In 2005, what Castor did was issue a press release saying that he wasn't going to charge Cosby because of, quote, insufficient, credible, and admissible evidence, unquote. So, it, you know, it doesn't mention a deal with Cosby, And it specifically, you know, this is an amazing quote to me. It specifically, quote, cautions all parties to this matter that he will reconsider this decision should the need arise. Pat Castor, in that press release, is basically reserving the right to himself to reconsider his decision should the need arise. It's hard to call that a non-prosecution agreement, but that seems to be the only documentation there is of any negotiation of that kind. So here's what happened. Castor would say eventually in a 2015 email that he apparently in a conversation that neither Castor nor Cosby's lawyer at the time seemed to have documented, which is very unusual, Castor promised not to prosecute Cosby provided he agreed to be deposed. That was the condition. So now, Castor did not tell his staff about this agreement. He didn't tell Andrea Constance's lawyers about this agreement. The only evidence we seem to have for the existence of this agreement, which appears to have been oral, is Castor's say-so. But the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decided to believe him. It upheld this sort of notional non-prosecution agreement. And it's for a reason that it's hard to disagree with, which is that prosecutors have a tremendous amount of power, and it is bad for everyone when they don't keep their promises. You know, A prosecutor could get a suspect to waive his Fifth Amendment right not to self-incriminate by promising not to prosecute, and then change his mind.
0: And so I think this is what makes this, oh, I hate when this happens, right? (laughs) These situations where perhaps the principle makes sense, and its application makes everyone deeply uncomfortable. And then there's some inconsistencies that make you wonder, like, what is actually going on? Because the thing about this case that is really important to understand is that Andrea Constance claims against Cosby go from a civil issue to a criminal one which is unusual because these depositions are usually sealed and these agreements are usually shrouded in non-disclosure agreements. And so, like, if you think about sexual assault cases, the challenges of statutes of limitations, the difficulty in collecting evidence, especially after so many years have passed, then civil judgments become, like, the next best thing. But I always thought that these two worlds were separate.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the irony... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, is that the point? Is this why this is, like, such a problem?
1: Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it speaks, I suppose, to some progress that has perhaps been made that, at the time, Bruce Castor, as, as you know, a prosecutor, did not believe that Constand was, quote, credible enough to secure a conviction against Cosby in a criminal context. Now we could have a long conversation about what his reasons for thinking that were, and also maybe what the assumptions of the culture at that time were and, and honestly continue to be. It's not like victims are are believed across the board still, but your point is, is, is well taken, which is like, you know, what probably should have been a criminal charge became a civil suit and then strangely became criminal again.
0: And so in these situations, I think, um, the other part of it that's really uncomfortable because a long strategy or long time strategy of the Cosby legal team was to try to discredit Content as someone who is like extorting him, someone um, who is seeking uh, money. They would defame her and her mother for that, and so part of the discomfort comes from the fact that this is about a financial settlement, an agreement about what is fair in terms of damages. From something like sexual assault. And so the legal system frames money as perhaps the closest or next best thing to justice. But the reason why we have that is because the other part of the legal system doesn't take this seriously. So it becomes this like monster, um, the self fulfilling prophecy of like, where do women go in these types of situations?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it, it would be, I suppose, easy to, you know, to tar Constant as a, you know, I don't know, <laughs> money-grubbing extortionist if money had been what she had initially been after, but it wasn't. She specifically wanted justice. She wanted to have him criminally charged. And then the prosecutor said, no, I'm not going to do that. Here is, you know— my idea for what could happen next. And so as as we have seen with so many of these cases, you know, including so many of Weinstein's victims, yeah, they end up in this sort of trapped in this strange situation where their only recourse is to accept money and an NDA. That's basically the only remedy that appears to exist in a system that's incredibly hostile to um, to claims of sexual assault.
0: Well, one of the things that, it's, that this story also kind of highlights is like, On one hand, you have this very familiar situation where survivors and, you know, perpetrators having these kind of unequal positions in some parts of the justice system, but also you have this, like, huge star – who is not only being accused by one person, although this case was about this one person, there are scores of women behind this kind of effort to try to bring some accountability to Bill Cosby. And the other thing about this that is also so uncomfortable, but perhaps familiar, is that this has been kind of a big, open secret. Like, part of the discourse about Cosby for a long time in 2006 Philadelphia magazine you know wrote a story about these accusations um, against Bill Cosby we know that Hannibal Burris's stand up you know moment that went viral in 2015 mentioned Bill Cosby's behavior in the past and even like when you go back to Bill Cosby's own kind of talking about using Spanish fly When I was 13, man, start talking about weird things. No, really, stand on the corner. You know anything about Spanish fly? What? (laughs) Spanish fly. It always happens when you're thirteen. Only when you're thirteen on up to like when you get married. Guys stand around and talk about Spanish fly, and it never starts with one of the guys on the corner. It's always some strange thirteen year old who says, You know what? You know anything about Spanish fly? No, tell me about it. Well, there's this girl, Crazy Mary. You put some in her drink, man, she <laughs> Yeah, Spanish Oh, yeah, that's really groovy, man. Spanish fly is groovy, yeah, boy. From then on, man, anytime time you see a girl Well, she has a Spanish fly, boy go to a party, see five girls standing alone. boy about a whole jug of Spanish fly light that corner up over there. Ha! All of this stuff is it's weird that there's decades of recorded conversation as well as information about this environment that he lived in. but it took until the 2010s for there to be any kind of movement behind it.
1: You know, as with Weinstein, Weinstein was kind of an open secret, too. There's just, I mean, really heavy, systematic disinclination to go into the details of any of those of those claims, as as we have seen. And, you know, as as the Cosby case, I think, demonstrated pretty, uh, pretty conclusively And, and honestly, a lack of will to convict. I mean, you know, in 2017, when I wrote that first piece, it was because the jury just couldn't come to a verdict even then, you know.
0: Well, I think also, I mean, to think about a jury, what would it be like to be in a courtroom with Bill Cosby? <laughs> because I think it's very hard. And I think it's been hard for a very long time for people to um, disaggregate Bill Cosby the person and Bill Cosby, the entertainer and the philanthropist. I know that there was huge fallout and a lot of consternation about what to do with the Cosby family name that appears on the can- on the campuses of a lot of historically black colleges and universities At a lot of various philanthropic groups have used that Cosby name. And so when we think about the world of the Cosby case, it isn't just the legal system and it isn't just entertainment and it isn't just about kind of politics around sexual assault, it's this really, really wide world. And so I think that it's so interesting to think about like what this means for future claims against high profile people as well as these everyday cases that still don't get heard. We're going to take a break here. but if you're enjoying the waves and we would love it if you would like and subscribe to the waves wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And if you want to hear more from Marsha and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today Marcia and I talk about one thing that helped make us feminists. I'll be talking about my best friend's wedding, and Marsha will be talking about Catholic school uniforms.
0: So Cosby's release from prison. What are we supposed to do with this in relationship to what we call Me Too? I'm not entirely sure that this then chills the opportunity to kind of organize around bad actors and to move forward with trying to find platforms for survivors to tell their stories. I, I think that there's something kind of in between because the, you know, the point that, um, you know, we had talked about was that, you know, this case against Cosby was one of many accusers. And yet, even if they did not participate fully in the trial, there was a space that was opened up for them to talk about their experiences and to kind of form a community among each other. I mean, that New York magazine cover that had all of The women who had come forward against Cosby, like, there's something really powerful about it. And I'm always like cautious about not overvaluing the um, symbolic because I think that can be dangerous. But I think that the strength of Me Too as a framework for advocacy or activism is more than just criminal convictions.
1: I think that's true. I think that's right and that's 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 an important point to hang on to. I think I think my hope had been given the explosion of, I think, deeply symbolic and very moving revelations and confessions and all of these women, you know, coming forth to like testify about what had happened to them, that that would translate at some point, right, into legal outcomes, that at some point a legal system which has been demonstrably unresponsive to claims of sexual assault at every level would would, would respond. And so I think a thing that was sort of dispiriting to me about the Cosby verdict is, it's not that I disagree with the, the principle that prosecutors right should, should keep their promises. I think they should. But I think there is, at least at this juncture, an unwillingness by many legal actors to self-police or to look backwards to see that a plea deal, for example, should be reversed because it was negotiated in bad faith. And so I think on the legal front, that's where we are. And that's very depressing to me. But that's as bleak as I want to get, I think you're right that the conversation has to go beyond
0: carceral consequences, right? Well, I think this is the thing that makes this really hard because the past, you know, seven years in America have felt like 17 years <laughs> every <laughs> 12 months, the kind of discursive lens and, and the goals are shifting, right? And so I don't know if we come out of this past year out of the George Floyd summer, out of conversations about what does it mean to defund and dismantle policing? What does it mean for us to think about strategies of restorative justice? And then also think, okay, a victory is a criminal conviction. Um, That, you know, incarceration is the goal. And at the same time, you know, survivors can ask for whatever they want. I don't want to suggest that, like, you know, people have to shift their goals necessarily. But I do think that when the discourse changes, the abilities for juries to filter and understand the law changes, even if the law remains static. And this is where I think our system of what we call justice can have a lot of potential and a lot of problems. Because I think that people's consciousness and understanding of sexual assault allowed for the criminal conviction to come forward. But what does it mean for then this shift to make people kind of maybe more vigilant or more aware of prosecutorial power? But also, what does it mean to understand coming forward and and speaking one's truth as being able to do other things? And I think that this is where the Me Too movement has shown some of their power in saying that, like, there is a possibility of standing in solidarity as being a survivor of sexual assault. And there can be something really meaningful of just the testimony and the understanding you're not alone. But again, I think the, the problem is, is that the two cases that we've been talking about are such outliers. They involve people with levels of wealth that are so incredible and situations that are – have so many layers and so many people involved that – I don't know if I don't know if this moment was necessarily connecting to people in their everyday lives that the taking down of Cosby or the consequences for Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know if that is what was keeping people animated and excited. I think it was the possibility that like, there's a different way of understanding um, sexual assault, and there's like a different way of pushing society.
1: I can sign on with that. I like that. I do think it was very interesting, you know, when I was covering the Cosby trial initially, like when it was, you know, um, in 2017, when he first was basically allowed to go free because the jury couldn't reach a verdict. A really interesting thing I think that speaks to your point is that no one was interested in the trial as it was happening. It was a strange thing to me. (laughs) Like, you know, the charges had been a really big deal. But news interest in the trial itself was so lacking that I actually ended up writing an article about it because it was so weird. It was like people just did not want to know. They had tuned out and I was like, is it because it's not televised? Is it because of, you know, residual affection for Cosby? Is it because he's too old for people to feel good about him? You know, I don't know, receiving some kind of comeuppance. It's hard to take pleasure in like, you know, <laughs> the incarceration of a very old man. I, I I don't know what it was, but it was definite. And I think is, is certainly like supporting your sense that that these are outliers and it's hard to know what they mean to the public generally.
0: I just, Oh, what do I hope for? I hope that this moment isn't framed so much as a setback, but a call to consciousness of the various kind of limits of the legal system. And that there is a place to talk about the power that people have found within themselves over the past few years, because, you know, some of these sexual assault allegations go back into the 1960s. And so the fact that people who had been living with the level of trauma and the level of doubt and confusion for 50 years, had a space in which to talk about their experience, I I think that is worth something. And I don't want to suggest that it's worth everything. But I think that, you know, the broad umbrella of Me Too is constantly being forced to consider like all of the various dynamics that go into a, a culture that um, protects, um, you know, people who commit sexual assault, and that needs to kind of think differently about our responses to it. Like, I think that this is always a moment for perhaps greater learning. I always hope people do, but I'm never sure if they are. I also think that like this is also a helpful entry point for people to say you know like what are we talking about when we talk about our reactions to this Cosby verdict like are we are we reacting because we put a lot of hope in the legal system. Are we reacting because it just feels like such a setback? Does it feel familiar that the, the rich person gets away with it? Like what exactly are we reacting to? And I think that for people who want to be engaged in these discussions, like you might start them on Twitter, but I don't know if Twitter is the place to have them in their most robust way. But you know, when we're talking about this, I think we have to be really clear and specific as to what part of this we struggle with.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think I think that probably the reason it is standing out as as disproportionately significant is that for all that I think Me Too has been uh, charged with overreach and with doing too much in practical terms, I think, you know, (laughs) the only three people who come to mind for me anyway, who that Me Too managed to have any effect on were massive serial offenders (laughs) who were famous enough that their actions were eventually noticed, right? So that's Cosby, that's Epstein and that's Weinstein. Those were kind of like the big 3, right? So I think it's possible that Cosby has has sort of like retroactively acquired extra resonance just because there have not really been many others, like it, you know, and so that one of the three I think is gone. has gone has has maybe produced a distorted sense that a system disinclined to react to this stuff is still not changing. Um But I think you're right that to the extent that the criminal justice system is powered by, you know, (laughs) people who are products of their culture, it it does matter that, for example, juries might approach these cases differently than they would have, you know, 10 years ago, we can hope. Um, My hope is, frankly, that the legal system starts to find a way to actually Self police and more aggressively than it has, I think I one of my frustrations remains that there are not consequences for bad prosecutors in either direction. at worst, there is an overturned conviction um and I really would like to see some effort directed towards you know tackling that side of things as well so maybe maybe if the Cosby case can serve some symbolic function, maybe it can be like a way to exert pressure on, like, or, you know, to to publicize the fact that there are some serious problems with how the legal system treats these things without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, we should just not honor any plea agreement, period.
0: Right. And I think that, you know, ultimately what we want is a change of behavior. And we want to think about all of the consequences and all of the modes of accountability in a community. And so until that happens, it's really fantastic to talk to you about this case and answer a lot of my pressing legal questions. And before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Lily, what are you loving right now?
1: Well, Marsha, a thing that I am loving right now is a very silly, delightful show called, in English, Money Heist, which is a very stupid title in Spanish. It's called Casa de Papel, House of Paper, much better title. Um, that is, I think at this point, Netflix's second most watched show of all time. But it's, you know, it's a Spanish show. So I think a lot of American audiences have not yet cottoned on to it. And it is, you know, exactly what it sounds like. It's a heist show. But what I have found so incredibly enjoyable about it is that when I think of a heist movie or show, what I immediately picture is like hyper competence, right? Like I, you know, this kind of very intricate system that is like calculated at, at every turn where everyone sort of silently does their part with perfect execution. And what this show does is, is sort of assemble a group of characters who have just such a figure. Like there is a genius figure who's trying to coordinate all this, but they themselves in the middle of the heist could not be less disciplined there, it's, it's it's almost becomes like a soap opera in the middle of the heist where people are saying, you know, having fights over who's in love with who or like, you know, I, I'm i sleepy and I have not gotten enough sleep and I'm hungry. And so they start doing completely irrational things. And it's, it's such a delicious, like <laughs> hilarious, like <laughs> acknowledgement of humanity in the middle of like a very, very, very messy and formulaic in many ways, like heist show that I cannot help but take intense pleasure in it even though it's sometimes incredibly cheesy often like really very silly but also symbolically interesting because i don't think i'm spoiling much by saying that one of the things that the you know the heist people do is 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 dress everyone including their hostages up in these red jumpsuits with salvador dali masks so that you know so so called bad guys cannot be distinguished from the hostages and what the show is really banking on, pun intended, is Spanish fury at the banks because of the 2013 financial crisis. Oh,
0: I like that framing.
1: It's so interesting because so so what the heist is, is they take over the Spanish mint. (laughs) And so all they want to do is just like hold off the police as long as they can so they can print as much money as they can, stealing from no one. So it's a very funny, interesting Robin Hood premise, and this is all to say that those jumpsuits and masks have now become, like, a symbol of protest all over the world. Like, they're showing up at protests and at soccer games everywhere. Anyway, it is delightful. I could not recommend it more. What's yours?
0: Okay, this is going to be controversial, but I recommend a good deep dive season watch into the various Real Housewives franchises that are on right now. Um I am a new mom. I have a four-month-old baby. And so I have to be very judicious about my television watching, though it's still a priority. And <laughs> I think that the three different Housewives seasons that are on right now is like everything you need to know about America. You've got wow. COVID and like. Um, financial scandal in Beverly Hills. You have this very uncomfortable season of racial reckoning on New York and people are collapsing. Potomac just started <laughs> this past, this month and a couple weeks ago, and you have this really weird kind of slice of life of what happens during covid to people from like depression to anxiety to feeling the need to remake themselves i mean i can't think of a more deliciously anti-feminist feminist feminist thing to do than to get back into the real housewives i i strongly support
1: (laughs) i love this i've never (laughs) seen a real housewives what should i start with which one what do i start with
0: as a newbie, I would start you off with New York. Yeah, I think I think I think you're ready for it. We'll talk more next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with Gene Thomas, providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.